I love it when there are moments where things actually get quiet and slow down in God's presence. It's one thing to be quiet when you're by yourself. It's a lovely thing. Uh, it's especially beautiful when we're together as God's people. I've had the privilege of being either coached or conducted musically um, at different junctures in my life um, by people who had a knack for accomplishing this of taking like a team or an orchestra and bringing them to a very focused and quiet place altogether. And that's one of the things a good coach or music director can do, can bring a team to quiet the noise, push away the chaos, and bring what matters most, focus, togetherness, and a common goal, a common direction. There's a show, um, not going to advertise it too hard, on a streaming platform right now about kind of a atypical coach who is able to do this in some amazing ways, uh, a guy named Ted Lasso. I'm not recommending this show for anyone under the age of 50, say. So don't show this to your 10-year-olds, please. In fact, there's quite a few parts that like makes me a little embarrassed and blush a little bit. The reason why I mention this show is because there's some non-Christians who are making this show who are able to depict some incredibly noble virtues that come out through this man's imperfect and kind of atypical coaching skills. You'll notice that behind him in the seats is spelled out the word believe, and this is one of his big things that unites his team. By the way, Ted Lasso is an American football coach who gets hired to coach football in Great Britain. He doesn't know the rules of soccer, for example, but he goes there to coach anyway. Um, the other amazing thing that happens on the show that routinely brings people together is like in every other episode, one of the characters is forgiving one of the other characters in some kind of unexpected and tender and often beautiful sort of way. I mean, it's apart from Jesus, it's apart from the Bible and the gospel for the most part, but it really does my heart glad to see when the world is able to depict some of the things that we talk about so regularly, what the power of faith and belief and mutual forgiveness can do to bring a team or a group of people to unity. The reason that I'm bringing this up is because both we as a church are facing similar challenges. How are we going to come all together? And it's wonderful that the Holy Spirit led us to Acts chapter 15, just as we were coming back indoors together. Last week was the first part of diving into that chapter. And in Acts chapter 15, the early church faced their first huge challenge. Were they going to split in half between Jewish and Gentile believers, or was there going to be a way forward to believe in the vision that Jesus put out there? to occasionally be flexible and forgive one another so that they could all move in the same direction. I mean, here's what happened. Some Jewish believers came to the churches and said, unless you are circumcised, by which they meant, unless you follow the entire law of Moses in what we would call the Old Testament, you can't be saved. Like, that was their contention. And if you ever want to have, like, a deal breaker in a church... Just like start a sentence that way. Unless you fill in the blank, you can't be saved. 
We've probably heard a few of these things through the course of our lives. Unless you sing with your hands in the air, you can't be saved. Right? Unless you sit reverently for 10 minutes before church starts. Like we make up all kinds of additional rules. The church's way of handling this, this potential massive split, and the question of, could the gospel of Jesus be enough? Or is there going to have to be 600 and some laws that everybody has to follow? Or do we need to break into two groups? Their way was to get all together in Jerusalem. And early in Acts 15, we hear that Paul and Barnabas spoke, and they spoke to what the Holy Spirit had been doing. And then Peter himself, one of Jesus' original disciples, spoke. And he spoke to his experience of what he had seen in Gentiles coming to believe in Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized. And then Jesus' half-brother James spoke, and he spoke from the Old Testament. He quoted the book of Amos and a prophecy that made it clear that God's intention all along was to bring as many people as possible, from as many nations as possible, from as many corners as possible into the church. That was God's plan. After they listened to James, it was like, James, that was pretty good. You sound like your brother even a little bit. I'm suspecting a few of them said because they wrote a letter and their letter is pretty much word for word what had just come out of James' mouth. So in handling this possible division, the early church writes a letter to send to all the congregations to tell them what's what. Here is the letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, were writing to the Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, the Gentile regions, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you, our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are sending with them Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are now writing to you. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Number one, abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Number two, from blood. Number three, from the meat of strangled animals. And finally, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Does that seem like a strange list to you of how to keep the church together? By the way, is everyone avoiding uh, blood? <laughs> is everyone eating their steaks well done? That's what I'm trying to ask. So there's some things in this list that we would say, like, absolutely, this seems like a good way to keep people together 2,000 years from now, to guard um, the holiness and sanctity of marriage and sexual behavior, like most Christians, like we are on the same page 2,000 years later. The first three things may seem a little odd to us. I would put it positively this way. 2,000 years ago, it would have been a deal breaker if some people came to church and they had just been hanging out in a pagan temple with idols. Like, that would have been a big problem, especially for Jewish believers. And the other thing that would have been a big problem for Jewish believers is if the church came around the table to eat together, to fellowship together, and if there was the presence of either animals that had been sacrificed at pagan temples 
or too much blood. Of the Old Testament laws, one of the deepest ones to the early Jewish believers was that we were supposed to guard and treat with maximum dignity and respect the lifeblood of every creature and every animal. It seems especially odd. Did people strangle animals in the old days? Is that how they prepared dinner? Like, why is that one of the rules? The rule, the rule against that is that if you would strangle an animal, its lifeblood would stay in it rather than killing the animal and draining it. So if you killed and cooked an animal that way, it would be full of its own lifeblood and therefore, again, super offensive to the Jewish believers. I don't think that some of these rules in this very crucial letter are like eternal rules for all of the church, right? A couple of them tap into the Ten Commandments and like the deeper um, yeah, law that God asks us to all be grateful and follow, but some of them do not. The thing that the church was striving for was to keep every believer, no matter where you grew up, no matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, no matter what race you were, no matter what your history was in synagogue, inside or outside, that you could get together. And if we avoided these four simple things, that would knock down most of the hurdles and allow everybody to be together. That's the vision and the value in this first church fight and of the first church council. I think 2,000 years later, the vision that our elders have put in front of us for Elmhurst CRC to be all together is not very dissimilar from this. I mean, we did not publish a list of four things of like, hey, avoid X, Y, and Z to make this happen. Um, when it comes to Sunday morning worship, um, I would suggest a couple, a couple things that would really be helpful to keep us all together. Like, if you see somebody that you know or don't know here, um, like, don't bother asking them, did you go to the first service or the second service? Like, it doesn't matter. Because, like, we're all here together. And, like, start somewhere else. Like, something that you could share in common or something that would unify you rather than something that would maybe immediately put up a big wall. Um, I would suggest maybe not leaving the sanctuary and having the first thing come out of your mouth be something like, ah, the band was kind of loud today. That really bothered me. A couple of those contemporary songs, I didn't know them. Or vice versa, like, I don't know what to make of it when we have a choir of people and why were so many up at one point and then it was a smaller group. Like, what's going on? And that one song was kind of, it was beautiful, but it, was that classical like, all the stuff about music, here's the thing about music. It's all supposed to impact us, bring us together, and turn us toward God. Now, if you want to talk about that, more power to you. My word for us in here all together is just this, participation. Like, that's what matters. Um, all of us who are leading music up here, our goal and our number one job is to help you participate. It's not to be really good at our instruments, although we practice and we're going to rehearse just to help us lead you well. But the main goal of all the music here is to help all of us come to the table together and sing and praise and experience something in God's presence. That is what it's all about. Now, if you leave a sanctuary like today and you're like, Pastor Greg, I've, I really struggled to participate in a couple of those songs and here's why. I would love to hear that from you, right? Because then what I'm hearing is like, I really want to experience God 
and there maybe was something that a little bit got in my way. If you frame it that way, I will talk to you all day long because I want you and you and you to come to this place and feel free to participate. And if we do that all together, like amazing things will not only happen in this hour of worship, but we will carry out so much energy and hope and vision and joy that God will do even more amazing things through our life in a community as a result of our participation here all together. Awesome. So 2,000 years ago, uh, how do you think the people reacted when they read this letter? Did they clap? Were they happy? Acts 15 actually tells us. Here's what the Bible says. Now the people spread out over churches over hundreds of miles. They read the letter and were glad for the encouraging message, the message that we are all in this together following Jesus. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, whoa, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Notice that when the early church sends out this letter, it is not just the verbatim of the letter, because that is not how the best messages get communicated. You just read the email, boom, and done. They were wise enough to send out Paul and Barnabas, who were well-respected and loved all over the church, and they send out two other guys, Judas and Silas, to confirm the message and to speak face-to-face with all of the early believers. If you're like me, more of the message comes through the face, the body language, than it does just the black and white in the words on the page. And these early Christians were wise enough to do this. This is why we have had elders five weeks in a row stand up in front and not just like publish a document to throw at you all that says, hey, here's what we're going to do next. Amazingly, sometimes when we hear the word prophet, we think it just means like people who have visions, people who know the future, and then maybe tell the church what the future is. Two prophets are mentioned in this little passage, Judas and Silas, and the way their prophetic spiritual gift works itself out is that they strengthen and encourage the church. Now, that is prophetic behavior. What is the opposite of strengthening and encouraging? The opposite is discouraging and making people, like, shaky and wobbly. After a year and a half of a pandemic, many of us are shaky and wobbly and somewhat discouraged, right? One of the prophetic things that the church hopefully can do uh, for us as we come back together is strengthen and encourage us. Like, I am not immune from this. Um, I had this picture of myself just a few few weeks ago. I think it was as kids were going back to school. Um, And, you know, everybody takes the happy first day of school pictures and the kids are just like bright-eyed and hopeful, and they got their cute backpack, and all their clothes are totally clean. I found a website where parents were bold enough to publish second day of school pictures, and the kids are just a mess. I mean, some of them are like lying face down. Other ones just like look like they got beat up. Here's a brother and sister. Their picture on the first day, they're like all happy, smiling, brotherly, and sisterly love. And there they are the second day. Their parents took them out for hamburgers, and the little boy just has his face cupped in his hands. I don't know how I'm going to go on. And the poor little girl is just exhausted. And what I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me was like, dude, that's you. 
Like, that's me. Like, right now. I thought I had, like, adult life, not, like, figured out, but, like, two years ago, I was in a pretty good groove. Kids are leaving home. Like, wow, like, this actually seems to be working pretty well, and I stand before you today exactly like this brother and sister, like, what is going to happen next? How is this going to work? Like, we're bringing everybody together. What if we all just hate each other? I do not have this figured out, but... God, the Holy Spirit, uh, is so good to day by day strengthen and take my weak and wobbly knees and encourage me. And our deep prayer is that as we come back together, the same will happen for us, both collectively and person by person. So this seemed to be working well in the early church. Here's how Acts 15 ends. Sometime later, after all the strength and encouragement, we're going out. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of God and see how they are doing. What a lovely idea. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. Now, don't those seem like two great ideas? These two, like, church planters, God used them mightily, and Paul's like, I have this vision. We should go back and check on the health and the energy of all these congregations that have been birthed. And Barnabas is like, yes, awesome idea. Let's take my cousin, John Mark. And then here's what happened next. But Paul did not think it wise to take Mark because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them earlier in the work. Now, these brothers had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, the prophet, and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, and they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, if I were writing the Bible and writing a whole chapter about the beauty of the unity of the early church— I would not end that section by talking about this amazing breakup story between two of the heroes of New Testament faith, Paul and Barnabas. But that is exactly how the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Acts through Luke. Isn't that amazing? Some people think, like, the Bible is whitewashed or just puts, like, the positive, shiny spin on things. Like, this is real life here. You have two people who have been through the trenches together, have traveled the world together, have seen God do awesome things through their Uh, collaboration and co-work together, and now they have such a sharp disagreement about do we bring this young protege along? I don't think we should because he ditched us last time. I really see the potential of this guy. We have to bring him along. He's totally up for it now that they go separate ways. This seems possibly profoundly discouraging to me. However, the Bible is full of instances when people come to a threshold like this And people lift up their eyes and pray something like this in the Psalms again and again. Like, God, how is this going to work out? And if that's you today, you are in great company. How is this going to work out? Here's one thing we know right off the bat. Where there was one team of two amazing church planters, overnight it becomes two teams of four amazing church planters. Like, that seems possibly like the beginning of a win for God's bigger kingdom project. 
Here's what else we know from the book of Acts. A short while later, John Mark, this guy who'd formerly been a deserter, he's going to work with Barnabas for a while, and then he is going to partner up with Peter himself. He is going to be the writer for Peter. He's going to walk side by side with Peter. He's going to be mentored by Peter. And this former deserter, John Mark, he's going to end up writing probably the gospel according to Peter, which we have in our Bibles, which is called the gospel according to Mark. I mean, this guy that Paul didn't want ends up with a book in the Bible. Like, not bad. Not a bad transformation, right? Paul and Silas. In the next chapter of the book of Acts, they are going to be visiting these churches together. They are going to be the first ones to cross from the continent of Asia or modern-day Turkey into the continent of Europe, and they are going to witness the first sort of European believers come to Christ. It's going to come with a cost, though. They get thrown in jail, and on one night, they're going to be sitting in jail, and miracle of miracles, they're going to be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs at midnight, and in the middle of that jail, as a result of their praise, like their praise is going to be so like lively, it is going to manifest itself with echoes that cause their chains to break and the walls to fall down, and there are going to be more and more people who come into the first European church because these two brothers went to prison. Like, that's pretty good fruit from a little disagreement back in Antioch. So in Psalm 121, there are these words. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's not hard for me to imagine Paul and Barnabas and Silas and John Mark saying to themselves, like, I'm lifting up my eyes to you, God. Like, how are you going to make this work out? Psalm 121 ends with confidence and security and praise to God who always answers these prayers and in the big picture works things out. Do you know how Psalm 122 begins? It's not an accident that Psalm 121 starts with this prayer and Psalm 122 begins in a totally different spiritual posture. Psalm 121 is this. Oh God, I'm lifting up my eyes and just like scanning the horizon. Who is going to help me? Psalm 122 begins with these words. I rejoiced when they said to me, let's go together to the house of the Lord. And it's like an explosion of praise. This is the thing that happens time and time again in the scriptures, that our questions, our stuck places, our problems, our difficulty, our sins that make us scan the horizon and wonder if God is ever going to show up, that God indeed will come through and translate our doubts and our difficulties and our challenges into praise and into better days ahead. Do you believe that that is possible? I believe that that is possible. <laughs> I'm still in the place on a whole number of fronts in life where I'm looking at the horizon wondering, like, God, how are you going to do this? And I am counting on that whether I'm 50 or 60 or 70, that God is going to do some things right here in the land of the living that are going to call forth a higher and deeper and more profound hallelujah than I've been able to muster thus far in my life just because I haven't experienced what is still yet to come. 
And if God takes me home first, I think that will be the ultimate answer to all the things that I've been scanning the horizon for my entire life. So whether I get to hang around and see it with my own eyes, I'm going to offer a more profound hallelujah. And whether I don't get to see it in this land, I think the first thing, Lord willing, that God's put enough faith in me to do this, the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth on the other side is going to be a thank you and hallelujah. This is how we're going to end this service. The choir is going to teach a little musical version of Psalm 121. Lord, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And then the hallelujahs are going to start. I invite you to stand up. If you know this uh, musical version, just sing along whenever you're ready. Otherwise, we'll teach it to you once and invite you to join in. <laughs>